today we're starting a new series we're calling The Wonder of Worship, and it'll be two parts, today and then next Sunday. Um, in our family, we have uh, this little saying that we say, when something's really good, when something's really um, uh, like transcendent, or it kind of you know, uh, lifts your mind off of whatever you're going through, we say, you know, that's, that's a, like a magical moment. And so in our family, we talk about it. Some of the things, now some of you, again, that are watching from other parts of the country, you'll laugh when I say this because it would not be your opinion of what I'm about to say. But for us, snow. You know, we get so little snow in the south. When we get a, a fluffy, white, beautiful snow, and usually it means, you know, school's out and all of that. And so when we get snow, man, it's like, it's magical. I mean, it's just a magical moment. You go outside and everything sounds so quiet because it's coated with this powdery snow. And it's just kind of like a magical moment that makes you go, ah, oh. you know, the kind of this moment of awe. Fireworks, fireworks are something, you know, you, you light up the sky. I remember several years ago, we used to do an event called Celebrate America. And somebody happened to catch a picture of a, a bunch of people lying on a blanket looking at the um, fireworks, and you could see the reflection of the fireworks off their eye. And it was just such a cool picture. When you see fireworks blow up, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a magical moment. I think creation is a magical moment. If you've ever seen, uh, man, if you've been outside recently and you've seen the, um, the foliage, the changing of the leaves, the color, if you see a mountain stream, a waterfall, uh, you look into a deep canyon, you know, you see a beautiful mountain. There's something, there's just something magical about that that makes you kind of feel a little smaller and, and what's around you is a little bit bigger. Um, I think when you have a deep bond, you share a, a moment with someone that you love or a group of people that you love, and you have a deep, authentic moment of bonding, there's something... Um, Magical, you know. I don't mean magic, like for for all the legalistic people. Okay, I don't mean like spooky magic. You know what I mean? I mean it's it's a moment that's bigger than you. That's what I mean. And and I think also, um, it's those moments that kind of help you transcend the pain and the ordinary nature of life. And um, this is one of those times where I think we need one of those transcendent moments where we look up and see something bigger than ourselves. So we've called this series The Wonder of Worship. And it's been a tough week. And it's been a tough week. Uh, you, you, maybe you've been following the, you know, the outbreak of COVID-19. The cases are rising. Different states are reacting in different ways. You know, things are even closing. I saw two Birmingham schools have gone from in-person back online. Man, it's just been a tough week. It's been a tough week. It's a tough season. Uh, it's been a tough year, you know. We're still kind of cheering for 2020 to end, you know, as if something is going to happen, you know, when that happens. I hope, I hope 2021 will be better. You know, I want it to be better. But um, this holiday season, you know, we're creeping up on Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. And man, this holiday season just might be a hard time. It might, be, it might be one of the hardest times you know, we've known in a while. I think this is one of those exact moments that we need to look up. We need to look up beyond our circumstances, and we need to see something bigger than ourselves. And worship is one of those, 
experiences in life that lets us look at the greatest thing, the biggest thing. We kind of lift our attention up to God and say, God is bigger than our circumstances. God is bigger than any given moment, any bad moment. So this week we're going to talk about, or next week we're going to talk about why, why we worship God. Today we're going to talk about what happens when we worship God. Now, um, before, we, before we do that, um, I want to I, I try to talk about what is worship. You know, I, I, I have a hard time defining it. St. Augustine was one time asked, what is time? And he said, when nobody asks me what time is, I know exactly what it is. When, nobody, when somebody asks me what it is, I have no idea what it is. <laughs> and I feel that way about worship. When nobody asks me what it is, I know exactly what it is. And when somebody asks me, I go, well, it's, you know, it's a lot of things. Is worship singing? Is it standing? Is it lifting your hands? Is it all that stuff? Look, worship is so much bigger than all of that. It's what you do. It's how you do what you do. It's why you do what you do. Worship is, is uh, hard to define, but I want to start with Romans 12, verse 1, because I think it gives us a good starting point. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, that's kind of a way of saying, offer everything. Offer all that you are, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. So this phrase, offer your body, in other words, give all that you have. God has, through Christ, given everything that he's had. Now worship is giving back all that you are. So I've got a definition that I use that kind of helps me. I hope that it'll help you. Here's how I think about worship. Worship is responding to God with every part of my life. So it's not like coming to church and singing, but then on Saturday, you know, talking really bad to your family. That's not worship. It's not worshiping on Sunday and then on Monday going to work and cheating your boss. That's not worship. What worship is, is God has initiated a revelation of himself to us, and worship is responding to him with everything that we are. It's saying, God, I want to worship you with all I am, with my attitude, with my heart, with my finances, with my time, with my relationships, with my body, with my emotions, with my eyes, with my ears, with everything that I am, I want to respond back to you and I want to give my whole self to you. Now, to even ask the question, what happens to us when we worship, might seem like the wrong question. Because you say, wait a minute, what does it matter what happens to us? Isn't worship for God? Now, now listen, worship is not for God. It's to God. But worship doesn't make God better. God doesn't get bigger when we worship him. He doesn't become more God. He doesn't become more perfect. He doesn't become more powerful. He doesn't become more holy. Whether we worship God or not, God stands alone as a supreme being who needs nothing from us to be who he is. Worship is not an invention, a creation that God made for his own benefit, for his own ego, for his own need. Worship is a gift 
that he gave to you and I because we need it. Worship makes us better. Worship helps us. Worship changes us. So worship is for us, but it's to God. So when we exercise this gift of worship, what happens to us when we worship? I want to give you three thoughts this morning, and they each come from a different scene in the Bible. So let me set up this first scene. Just days after Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples were were locked down in a room, hiding. They were afraid because they thought the Jewish leaders or or the Romans or both were going to come and get them and uh, arrest them or even worse than that. I mean, remember, their leader had been crucified. So you know who's next? It's the, it's the, the co-leaders, you know, the, the assistant leaders, whatever you want to call it, the disciples, the closest to them. So they're hunkered down and they're afraid that the same thing that happened to him is going to happen to them. Uh, they were filled with chaos because Jesus had been crucified, he was gone, he was buried, and nobody could find him. His body had, had disappeared from the grave that he was in, so they were just living in complete chaos. They were in confusion. They thought it would end differently. I mean, when Jesus looked at the apostle Peter and said, drop your net, stop fishing, come follow me, and he left, these people had given up everything. They'd given up their occupation and their job and their livelihood and relationships. They dropped it all to go follow him only for this thing to end in his death and disappearance. And so there's confusion. They're thinking, what are we going to do now? Like our, our leader's gone and nobody can find him. Has life ever turned out that way for you? You ever had a diagnosis that you thought was going to turn out different? Or a job? You ever had a, a relationship? You know, I don't know anybody that starts marriage with the hope that it'll end in divorce. Nobody does that. But yet, some marriages end in divorce. And they end different than we thought they would end. And some relationships, you know, some people we put our trust in. And they turn out to not be trustworthy. And man, there's big disappointment. And then sometimes we just get disappointed with God because we say, I prayed. I mean, I did my part. I did everything that I knew to do. And like it doesn't seem like God's answering my prayer. I don't hear anything. And, and we get disappointed so you can kind of understand where they are. The disciples felt abandoned. They, their, the room was heavy with pressure. So they weren't like non-human. They were human like us. They, they felt what we feel. And this is what they're in the middle of. And then, and then Jesus walks in the room. John 20 verse 19 says this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, listen to this, with the doors locked, I love that. I love the honesty of the Bible. They're like, heck no. Lock the deadbolt. Lock the button lock. You know, we're shut this thing down. I could just see them in there, you know, with their with their backs to the wall, shotgun in their lap, like, uh-uh. It ain't ended like this. You know, we're not going down without a fight. You know, they're they're afraid, man. These people are afraid. I love the honesty of the Bible. Doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Listen to this. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, that can sound like, um, like a frivolous greeting. You know, good luck, peace to you. But man, it is so not that. 
the very first words the resurrected Jesus spoke to the room of his fearful followers was peace be with you. And that wasn't a wish. It was a declaration of the impact of God's presence on his people. He said, peace be with you. So here you go. What happens when you and I worship? Number one, peace replaces pressure. Peace replaces pressure. You know, we carry a ton of pressure. Money problems, relationship tension, emotional burdens, parenting challenges, physical problems. Did you know before COVID-19, the, the number one um, ailment in American life is anxiety? Number one diagnosed problem affecting a third of all adult Americans, and those are the ones who sought help. We don't know how many didn't seek help. Now, here's just a, like a rhetorical, no-brainer question. Do you think that COVID-19 has made that better or worse? Worse. But one of the things that I think we need to think about in the middle of this holiday season and difficult season is sometimes it's very important that we stop looking at what's around us and we lift our eyes up and look at what's above us. <laughs> because God is bigger. And when we do and we respond to him with all that we are, peace replaces pressure. I had a really unique opportunity several years ago. Um, Condoleezza Rice came into our community and spoke at American Village, and I had the, op the joy of being in that um, small gathering of people, a few hundred people. And she told one of the most powerful stories. Um, for those of you who you know, are old enough, you'll remember in 9-11, um, uh, when that event happened, Condoleezza Rice was on the president's cabinet. And, um, you know, these terrorists had flown planes into our buildings and thousands of Americans were dead, had been murdered under this terrorist attack. And um, w once the country was safe, you know, the, the immediate threat was squelched. The president and his, some of his cabinet withdrew to Camp David to try to figure out, you know, what are we going to do? We've been attacked on our own soil Americans are dead. You know, what other plans are there out there to hurt us that we don't know about? And it was just this, I mean, the pressure. The pressure of knowing that 320 million people in America are looking at you for leadership. That's a lot of pressure. And she said as we had dinner that night, um, it was just such a, a sober, heavy moment. Uh, that people were just kind of filled with anxiety, not knowing what to do. And she said, John Ashcroft, who was the attorney general, I believe, went to the piano and began to play this song that some of you will know. If his eye is on the sparrow, I know he watches over me. 
And he played it over and over and over, just spontaneously. Nobody asked him. Nobody knew he was going to do it. He just played it over, and some of them began to sing. And she said, you have no idea in that moment the comfort that it brought to, to me and the people in that room to, one, be surrounded by so many believers and to, and to be surrounded in a moment of worship. She said, the comfort overwhelmed us. What, what, is, what is that? When we worship, peace replaces pressure. Now, in the, um, the second point that I want to bring to you today is clarity replaces confusion. All kind of around the same time, after Jesus' death, there's two guys walking down a road talking about you know, have you heard the news about this Jesus who was killed? And they're talking about it. And, and what, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, Jesus, who has risen from the dead, appears to them in his resurrected body, but somehow looking so normal, they didn't recognize him as resurrected. And he just shows up and starts talking to them. And asking them, what are you talking about? You know, what, what things are bothering you today? And so he walks all the way back home with them, goes to their house, sits at their table, eats food, their food from their table, and then he just, at the end of the long conversation, answers all their questions, explains everything, then he just disappears, just poof, just beamed out, you know, Scotty out, he gone. And, and then here's the, look, look at Luke 24, 30, uh, that explains what happened. When he was at the table with them, he, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Watch this. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? When, when you and I worship, our eyes open, truth replaces our fantasies and our fictions and our myths and our misunderstanding. Because we've lift our eyes up and we're looking at Jesus. We've lifted our perspective up, and now all of a sudden, our perspective not only on God, but our perspective on our own life and everything around us changes. Because, because clarity replaces confusion when we worship. One Sunday, we were here for service, and a man came to one of our prayer team, and he said, I've been here many times before, and I've been attending church out of obligation uh, with my wife. And I've just been kind of watching and, you know, doing the thing. And he said, but today something happened to me. During the message, my, here's how he said it, my eyes were opened. And I saw Jesus differently. And I saw how far I had strayed from him and didn't even know it. But something in my life has got to change today. Pray for me. <laughs> you see, when we worship God, clarity replaces confusion. And peace replaces pressure. Now here's the last one. A few days before Jesus' death, um, these religious leaders had caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now that's a, that's a loaded story. The religious leaders didn't care about her, but they thought, yay, here's our opportunity to trap Jesus. 
We're going to take this woman who's obviously guilty. Forget the man. They never brought him. You know, we're just going to take her. We're going to drag her in front of Jesus, and we're going to trick him and test him. And we're going to say, we caught this woman in adultery. By law, she needs to be stoned to death. Now, what are you going to do? And had he picked the stone up and thrown it at her, they would say, you're a murderer. So it was a trap. Here's how Jesus responded. John chapter 8, verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away. Watch this. One at a time. I love how honest the Bible is. The older ones first. <laughs> you get it? The older ones are like, yeah, we're not winning this one. I've been around, and I know how this ends. The young ones are still there wanting to fight. <laughs> but the older ones are like, nah, let's call it a day. It's time to clock out. Unt- look, look at the next phrase, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing in the midst. I want, I want to show you something, okay? This, this line wrecks me. When, when life, whatever life had done to that woman, it brought her to a bad place. And then she was abandoned inside this little circle by herself. But in her moment of abandonment, even from her judgers, Jesus stood in the circle with her. Now watch, that's not even the best part. And she was guilty. She was wrong. Jesus won't abandon you when you're wrong. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. When everybody else turns their back on you, even the ones who want to punish you, even the ones who don't like you, maybe the ones who betray you or whatever else, Jesus will stand in the circle with you even if it's your fault, even if you caused it. Jesus has a stubborn love. And he's not just going to flutter away because you did something you shouldn't have done. He's going to say, I have committed myself to love you and to heal you and to walk you out of this life that you've been in. Is that not good news? That's some of the best news I've ever heard. Now... Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now look, here this woman is, guilty, afraid, (laughs) you know, thinking that she's about to be executed with rocks, pummeled to death. And then there's this new teacher in town, and she's thinking, who knows, maybe he's worse. You know, I don't know. What's he going to do? He chased him away, but maybe he's going to mistreat me. So here she is, filled with fear. Now, what happens when you and I worship, number three, love replaces fear. Perfect love drives out fear, First John says. 
And this is what's happening in her life. When Jesus walks on the scene, this woman's afraid for her life, and Jesus calms her fear. I know most people know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But look at what John 3.17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't walk into that circle with that woman to condemn her. And Jesus has not walked into your life to condemn you. He's walked into your life to save you, to help you, to strengthen you. And that's what he does. She was filled with fear and condemnation, shame, rejection. And Jesus is on the scene to fill her with love. If you grew up in a legalistic church background, you know what rejection feels like. Because every time you did something wrong, you know, you got your hand slapped with a ruler or something. You, you, you felt rejection, personal rejection. That's what legalism does. It doesn't separate the action from the value of the person. It condemns the person with the wrong action. And if you grew up in that kind of thing, if you grew up in an abusive environment, you know what rejection feels like. And oftentimes what we do is when we've suffered rejection, we try to reject others first. We try to create a wall to protect ourselves. Rejection is one of the most powerful tools that Satan will use to manipulate you and I. Satan uses it to control us and to keep us isolated from God and isolated from the people who God sends to help us. And that rejection causes us to live in fear. What are we afraid of? We're afraid it's going to happen again. And so we live this small, sheltered life. We fear the future. We fear not messing up. We fear not fitting in. We fear not dressing right. We fear bad news. We fear getting our feelings hurt. And Satan keeps us weak because we live in this fear. But listen, peace replaces pressure. Clarity replaces confusion. And love replaces fear. So no matter what you're experiencing today, when you respond to Jesus with all that you are, these things replace these negative things in your life. So would you just stand with me this morning? In my own prayer time, for the last couple of months, I've been adding something to my prayers every day. That's just been such a blessing to me. And it's so simple, you know. It's so simple. As I walk and pray, I say something like this. God, I came today to worship you. And so right now I surrender. Like I let down all my fear, all my stress, all my anxiety, all my pressure. Let me ask you a question, okay? Do you honestly believe that the resolution to all your problems, all the problems that you have today, if somebody could wave a wand over them and they could somehow just go away, do you honestly think that that would give you, that would be, that would fix your life? Let me tell you why I don't think it would. Because it wouldn't take but a few days or a few weeks or a few months and new problems would come and fill in the vacuum where those old problems were gone. You know why? We're not promised a, a problem-free life. But let me tell you what will make an impact on you. When you say, whatever's going to happen to my problems, 
I'm going to lift my eyes up off them this morning, and I'm going to look at the author and the finisher of my faith. I'm going to look into the eye of my creator, and I'm going to worship him. I'm going to lift his name up, and I'm going to worship him. So look, can we just do that? Man, these, these, are, such, these are such heavy times just grinding on us every day and every week. Man, this little series we're doing, The Wonder of Worship, man, we've got to be captured by the wonder of God because what's happening on earth sometimes just isn't all that good. Just isn't all that good. So would you, would you just close your eyes with me? If you're online, man, just close your eyes with us today and just turn the volume up. In just a minute, we're going to begin to sing. But would you just go ahead and start to surrender? Would you say that? Maybe you just want to open your hands. That's just kind of saying, God, I'm open. I'm, I'm letting go of what I've been holding on to. Either you're going to hold on to it or God's going to hold on to it. But both aren't going to happen. So why don't you just begin to pray that? Lord, today I surrender. God, I lay down anxiety. I lay, lay down fear. I lay down stress. God, I open my hands. The broken dreams in my life, I lay down the regrets for the things that I've done. God, I lay down guilt. I lay down. God, I came to surrender today. Lord, my life, the strengths that I have, the energy that I have, the ideas and the plans and dreams, God, I lay them down at your feet this morning. And what I do is I pick up worship. God, I pick up worship. I surrender to you today, and I come to worship you with all that I am this morning. So as our worship team begins to lead, come on, let's sing together. Let's sing together today and worship him in this place. And